Hi, I'm Raelle Bell. And I'm Liz Ware. And you're listening to That's Brilliant, a podcast by the American Lighting Association. Today's guest has so much good information that we're going to get right to him. But Raelle, why don't you tell us who we're talking to today? We have Matt Rowan, who is the Vice President of Residential Lighting and Marketing at Dominion Lighting. Matt has more than 25 years of experience in the design industry and brings a unique perspective to the showroom environment. He has such a passion for deepening the emotional impact of our environments, and most recently he has expanded that through lighting. As you'll hear, he's always been passionate about lighting and getting involved in the showroom, in a lighting showroom, was a dream come true for him. And at Dominion, they've done this wholesale revamping of the space and the website and the concept and the business model. So he's got a lot of great ideas about really focusing and honing in on your brand. But he also has specific actionable things that you can do over time. So it's not an all or nothing kind of deal. And that's what's so great about what he's going to talk with us today on. So Before we jump in, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Hinkley and Kitchler Lighting, for supporting this podcast. Hi, Matt. Welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Good to see you guys. We're so glad to have you here. We're really excited to jump into a topic about showrooms. It's one of our favorite topics to discuss, and you bring a lot of great experience and knowledge. So we're excited to dive in. But before we do that, could you tell us a little bit about your background? You don't come from the lighting industry directly as you started your career. So if you could walk us through a little bit of that. Yeah, I am a little bit of a weird bird. I do come straight from the design industry. So trained as an industrial designer, worked in some really large architecture firms. And actually my way of getting into the lighting industry was the Dominion Lighting, who I work for right now and run the business, was my client. We have been tasked with redesigning their business, redesigning their showroom spaces as really a total reimagining. And then the CEO had asked me to run the business. So a unique opportunity, certainly. But I will also say it aligns with just total lifelong passion for lighting ever since being a kid. So it's cool to have landed here unexpectedly. How do you think your design background gives you a different perspective on the industry, especially on the showroom side of things? Yeah. Design in and of itself is not about making beautiful things. It's really about problem solving. And a lot of what we were taught to do, particularly from an industrial design standpoint, is be really focused on the end user, the human factors aspects to it, their state of mind, before we even decide to make any design decisions. So from a showroom environment, it really is, if you're going to be successful, an experience that you want people to have, rather than just a place where you sell things. The internet always will sell things better than we do. So for us, it was critical from a strategy as well as a design standpoint to focus on the experience, what the needs of our customers and clients were, and then cater to them through our design decisions that we made throughout the space, cater to them through through the way that we purchase stuff, cater to them through the way that we price things. Again, all of those decisions were really based upon what our clients needed not what we wanted as a business. And I think the end result has been pretty successful. It sounds like it. So you came into the Dominion family with the goal, bringing you in, they had the goal already of things were changing. You had a new idea for what the showroom is going to look like. What are some of the specific business models and things that you wanted to implement right away that you have brought to the showroom? So one thing was to push it a little bit further up market. I think 
the way that showrooms had traditionally been run was almost as if they had no other competition out there. And that's the way that it was before, right? You really couldn't get a widespread of lighting or higher end lighting anywhere else. So they were almost, I don't want to say lazy about it, but they didn't have to think right about pushing things further up market and catering to that audience. So for us, elevating the experience to be one that was aspirational. When people are coming into the showroom, they want to be inspired about the potential of what their project could look like. They don't want to feel as if they have to visualize things too much or that they're overwhelmed. When we're looking at empathetic design, which is really key to a lot of the good design principles that we learn in industrial design school, getting into their frame of mind, they are overwhelmed. They're optimistic, they're, they're hopeful, they're excited, but there are too many choices that are out there. They don't know where to turn and they're really looking for help. So when you go into a traditional showroom, it is inherently overwhelming. Things are all jumbled together. It's essentially reflective of the problem in their head, not the solution that they want to get to. So our showrooms, we took the approach of treating it much more like a gallery space, something that was aspirational. People, when they design their homes, oftentimes will design them not on who they are, but who they want to be. And we wanted to show the showroom space and the fixtures for that matter as who they wanted to be. And so we have it as a gallery space. We have things within context as vignettes so they can see things within um, the context of the living spaces, dining spaces, and kitchens to help them visualize. And then we also are looking at making it feel easy and hospitable. So we did build in things like a hospitality station where we have things like Perrier. We're actually very careful about what we offer. We don't have traditional bottled water. We have water in boxes. We want every touch point that our customers and clientele encounter to be something that's an aha moment for them. When you started this project, did you get pushback and how did you deal with that? Were there people who said, no, we have to show as many products as possible because they need to find the thing they want. We can't just show 12. We have to show 274. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a great question. And, and yes. So the way that we normally would start any project at the, at the design firm that I was working for was what's called a visioning session. And what that is, is we get key stakeholders from all the different parts of the department. We run through a series of very structured exercises to elicit information from them to help us with our design process. And one of the quotes that we did hear from someone who was a more old school way of treating things is, oh, we need to be everything for everyone. Hmm. And for me as a brand guy, and that's, oh, no, if you're everything for everyone, you're nothing. So it was interesting to hear that. We knew that we needed to cater to a large audience. But I think we also knew after hearing and parsing all the information out there, some of it's like design therapy that you might hear one thing, but you understand another. We knew we did need to move up market. If we were going to be everything to everyone, that meant that we were competing with stores like Home Depot, like Amazon that could do our job better than us. So we had to find, not to use kind of corporate terms, but we had to find more of that blue ocean where there wasn't as much competition, where we could find our sweet spot and target that. And the thing is, is when you really do look at it, everyone wants to feel sophisticated and upscale and aspirational within their own spaces. No one goes out there and says, you know what? I want to be crappier. (laughs) (laughs) Not to be like blunt about it, but it really is one of those things. It's like, all right, as much as there might be times when our approach could be off-putting to certain customers, Mm. you also do have to make a decision as a business about which customers are profitable. One of the advantages that I had coming from an agency environment was I was aware of billable hours. We had to charge for every hour and I had to make it very efficient with what we were doing. If we look at that from our business standpoint, every transaction 
takes a certain amount of time with our staff members and therefore a certain amount of value. If we're spending an hour to make $10, that's not a good use of our time. But if we're spending an hour to make $2,000, that's better. So we really made that our target, both from an experiential standpoint, as well as a business standpoint, the business benefit being a side effect of providing that good experience that we wanted to provide. This is maybe a hair off topic, but now you're changing your customer base. So how do you reach out to these newer, more affluent customers? And how do you bring along a little bit of the kind of middle market customers who are willing to stretch and reach for the kinds of things you can provide? What was the process for making that adjustment? It's a great question. So marketing really does come into a lot of it. I think that is the benefit to some of the brand stuff that I was doing is that there's a marketing aspect to it. And we did hire on a marketing director that I work a lot with. So as a little bit of background, we also do all of our creative in-house and we do all of our marketing bias. We don't have an agency that's working for us. We do control that internally also because I'm a control freak, but I also, I can do it. So it is one of those things we can save some money there. Understanding the publications that our customers read, there's a halo effect to them. There is like a local edition of Architectural Digest that we are in. So it's the regular Architectural Digest publication. We found a way of getting into the local editions seamlessly. It looks like we're just a part of the magazine. Targeting our, like the home and design magazines that are out there, making sure that we have an ad campaign with them. There are digital tools through Google, Facebook, Instagram, where you are able to tailor to particular demographics, particular interests. So making sure that we're hitting a certain income level, a certain education level. So all those tools are really out there, frankly, for everybody. It really just takes looking for them. And then also targeting outreach to what I would say are our two primary audiences right now. We have our builders, which do the big custom homes. And then we have our individual clients that are what I would say are, to your point, Liz, the more aspirational folks. They're not hiring a builder. They are hiring a contractor. And so they're looking for help on that side. So we have both the digital and traditional print aspects. Outreach to builders we treat as doing lunch and learns for them, essentially offering our services and expertise for them to help them out with their business, to help troubleshoot before things become problems. And then with our individual folks, it is, we do a lot of community outreach, as much as it might sound counterintuitive. If we're in the right affluent neighborhoods, we will sponsor things like banners at their football fields because the parents of kids who are out there, we have their eyeballs and we do want to make sure that we have visibility for them. The other thing to keep in mind is when you're doing a business transformation like we are, we were Dominion Electric Supply Company. That arm of the business still exists. We rebranded ourselves as Dominion Lighting to reflect what we do so that we didn't feel much more industrial, created a new brand for it. But we are constantly fighting that old perception of who we were. We've been doing this for almost five years. I cannot tell you how much we hear from people who are coming in. It's, oh my gosh, I can't believe you changed. I'm like, oh. I wish you knew before you came in. It's great that people are discovering it, but there's still a level of discovery of this new model that we need to get out there. So we are actively pursuing those new customers, getting them in. It's a process. It's sometimes frustrating, but we need to do it. Anytime any of the showrooms are looking at undertaking that a transformation, doing something new that people don't expect, the biggest thing is getting them to know the new you as a brand. And sometimes it just takes a while. I had to explain to our CEO the other day that like, Look at us as the Buick of the lighting world. It was an upscale brand. It has the taint of having an older clientele not being as high quality. And right now the products are amazing. They're incredibly successful in China because that was new. There was no taint of the old brand there. And it just takes time. 
have to have great experience, get great product, and we'll eventually get people to come in and realize that we're a different animal than we were. To that point, you recently done a, a website overhaul. And yeah. what role does that play? Because I would imagine that, especially if you're doing like Facebook, Google advertising, when someone goes on the website and sees this modern website, that's got to play a big role in changing the brand perception. Oh, yeah. It's huge. And I think when we were looking at models for what we wanted to do with the website, we were really targeting some of the more aspirational brands. Design and fashion, like Gucci, Hermes, how do they express high end through that experience? Because in a way, the virtual space of the website has to reflect and connect to the real space that we people expect to see. We do want to make sure that the website isn't making promises that our showrooms can't deliver. So aspirational high-end, sophisticated with our level of graphics, but also very sophisticated and straightforward with the way that people navigate the sites. Luxury is choice and ease. And so we have to build that into the way that the site navigates. It can't be one of those things where you feel railroaded down and you're not getting the information you need quickly. So we were very conscious with how we dealt with navigation, how we dealt with photography, colors, typefaces, all of that stuff. And then we also had to make sure that we could get easy access to our products that we carried. We're using the Lights America platform on it. It looks seamless to our customers who go on it. It just looks like they're going to an e-commerce thing within our own website, but we tailored that to mirror what was happening with our website. And it's been huge because it also allows our clients to self-serve before and after their showroom experiences. It allows them that level of control which in a way feels more like luxury, like we're catering to them virtually by being able to search on their own terms, on their own time, and then directly communicate with our design team through that. Yeah. Speaking of that, just communicating with the design team, I noticed on the website, like when you first go on it, it says book a consultation. So how much of your traffic to the showroom outside of the builders, but with just like the retail residential customers, how many of those people are walk-ins and how many are more just, they go on the website, they book a consultation? Because that kind of changes the way you interact when they walk into the showroom. Yeah, no, and it's a great question because it is one of those things where I think we will occasionally get pushback from not actually our clients, believe it or not, but our own internal folks where they're like, oh, aren't you losing out? So to answer your first question, I'd say it's probably about 50-50, where 50% of our books that are coming in have booked appointments are coming through the ways in which we can encourage them to book appointments and give us a little bit of a background on their project. And then the other half are really walk-ins. They're aware of us. They see us as they come past. We do have signs on our doors saying that our designers are available by appointment only, but people are welcome to explore. And if someone's available, we'll, we'll pair them with them. So we, we do welcome walk-ins. The traditional issue that a lot of showrooms always suffered from was controlling the influx and the lulls of people within retail environments. You can't really control it. You can't predict it. And what that means is that if people are coming in, they expect to be served right then, especially when we're looking at a luxury clientele. And if everyone's already busy, they're angry and they're primed to be upset. If we are able to couch expectations and say, hey, we're not Home Depot, right? We are more of a service that happens to have things in it. Then they're going to be much more forgiving and frankly, more respectful of the time that we have in taking advantage of our services. We instituted it as a precautionary measure during COVID. And we really found that it just worked out really well, frankly. And it was one of those things where like, hey, we're never going back. So we no longer have irate customers saying, hey, I'm here. Why aren't you catering to me? You guys have a terrible service. It's more like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were appointment only. Can you accommodate me? And when we do, it's a bigger bump 
of really <laughs> gratitude and connection to us, frankly, that we accommodated them, that we're doing them a favor than it is if someone was just ready to go right off the bat and it wasn't employment only service. So it's funny. I've heard that from a few other showrooms that, you know, instituted similar policies during COVID that they're like, we're never going to go back because it's really proven to be, you know, a value add for them, for them and for their customers. And, and that's such a important thing to touch on is when you differentiate yourself from like the Home Depots, the Amazon, the online shopping, part of that is the service that you offer. Like you said, you are a service that happens to sell a product along with that service. Right. But And if you get a chance to find out a little bit about what they're looking for beforehand, you can come in really prepared and be better able to focus in and wow them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, no, and that is a big part of kind of those forms. So it does mean the manner in which we go to market with any of our advertising. We do say book your complimentary consultation today with almost all of our ads that go out there. The consultations have always been complimentary, but we're qualifying it as that. It does feel like it is a benefit. And then when they do that, when they do prime us for those things, the more that you feel as if you've been heard as a person and that people understand your project ahead of time, the more it feels like a personalized experience. And, and frankly, the more there's an emotional connection. And when we look at the success of any brand, it is going to be based on emotion and connection. And when we looked at repositioning ourselves from being a place that sells things to a place that sells partnership and expertise and troubleshooting, we talk about ourselves as being the lighting Sherpas. It completely competition proves us from the Amazons that sell things, but they don't sell support and they don't sell like reassurance. They don't sell someone who is cares about you and is listening to your needs. And frankly, we all need that. And seeing this stuff in person is critical because you experience it in person in your house. So why would you want to run that risk, particularly when you're spending thousands of dollars on a chandelier and seeing a beautiful photograph or a rendering right online, and then it gets in there and it's terrible and you install it and you have for all intents and purposes an albatross in your space that you regret every time you see it. COVID taught us that our homes are way too important to treat as an afterthought. And so you do want to make sure that any moves that you make in the space are things that reflect who you are, who you want to be, and make you feel good. You don't want it to be like, oh gosh, I really wish I returned that, but I didn't know how, and I didn't want to go to the UPS store to do it. We'll get back to our conversation in just a minute, but first a message from our sponsors. Hinkley is proud to be a fourth-generation family company with the mission of providing customers with exceptional lighting and ceiling fan products. They understand the passion their customers feel for their homes and are dedicated to helping them realize their vision. Learn more about the company, including some incredible charity work they do, at Hinkley.com. Kitchler Lighting is more than just a lighting company. They're a bring-people-together company focused on strengthening and growing relationships. They're constantly innovating, creating on-trend designs, and delivering high-quality product. Learn more and find inspiration and ideas at kitchler.com. But I want to shift gears a little bit here in a minute to talk about a couple of other product sales topics. But before I do that, I want to touch on the training and the way that your showroom sales consultants, whatever you call them, lighting specialists, the way that they greet customers. I'm sure there's kind of standard practices. Do, how do you avoid the deadly? What are you looking for today when people walk in? <laughs> right. 
oh, I'm just right. looking, that kind of thing. Do you have some yeah. standard practices that you guys use or some training protocols? We do. We do. Yeah. And so we have, we actually have kind of a brand book. So one of the things that I took was a lot of the stuff that I had been working on from a design agency standpoint and developing brands. And I made it a training manual for who we were as Dominion. So there are components where we talk about what is our personality as a business? What is our personality as a team? How do we talk? How do we approach people? What's the tone of our emails? It's been one of those things where we even get down to the granular nature of email communication, of being friendly off the bat. I know this sounds awful, but it's using exclamation points properly to make sure that tone is read as friendly and enthusiastic, even occasionally using emoticons. As much as it sounds counterintuitive from a luxury standpoint, again, luxury isn't about being formal and staid. It's about being attentive and emotionally available. So we want to make sure that the manner in which we communicate both electronically as well as in person is clearly laid out by this document. And that's what we use to onboard people first couple of days. Um, it's actually like a 20 page document that even has listings of, we are this, we are not this. Here's why we changed our brand. We were perceived as this before. We want to be perceived in this way. We even took some of the stuff from when we developed the brand early on at the design agency after that visioning session into the psychographic profiles that we have of our three primary customer targets being the retail shopper, the designer, and the builder. And within those things, we have psychographics, which are demographics are oftentimes just dry things. They're, they're quantifiable things like age, income, gender. With these, the psychographics are how does this person think? What are their problem points? What are they scared of? What are their aspirations? And how do they want to communicate? We have those all laid out so that by the time that our folks get to the floor, they've already internalized a lot of the character that we want to put forward as a brand. So it's less of a training on nuts and bolts and more of a training on those soft skills. And frankly, from a leadership standpoint, it is really important that I model that our management team models that as well, because that helps to reinforce any of those messages that we make early on. Effective training means it's not an episode that happens once and then never again. We have to continue to echo that approach and that level of communication and that demeanor. Even if I'm in a terrible mood and I'm tired and I have a headache, if I'm talking with my teammates, it has to reflect the way that I want them to talk to each other and the way that I want them to talk to our clientele. Definitely. So shifting gears now into, I just want to touch on controls because yeah. I know yeah, yeah. you guys sell controls and it is such a hot topic in the industry. And I know there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of kind of confusion for showrooms that haven't gotten into controls yet. And then there's a lot of issues that come up with some of the showrooms that do sell controls. So talk to us about what y'all sell and how you deal with the issues that can come along with that. It's a great question. So controls aren't going away and controls can either make or break a project, whether or not we specify them. LEDs are sometimes complex and sometimes finicky, and we have to understand what issues controls will cause before they get installed so that we can troubleshoot ahead of time. No one likes having to do it. The other thing is when we're truly looking at customer demand, customers want their homes to operate in the same way that the other critical things in their lives, that being their phones and their computers operate right now. And that is, they're oftentimes intuitive, very reliable and seamless. But even more than that, they're integrated. 
they're integrated with all these different components and they pull it together. The old way of looking at controls, I think has created a level of fear in trying to become an expert on it. They think it's a very high bar for kind of getting in the door. The good thing is that everything has evolved from a design and programming standpoint to make it much easier to understand. So what I encourage a lot of our folks to do is beta test some of these controls on themselves. I did that myself. I wanted to make sure that I was comfortable with like the Lutron Caseta product, with the smart plugs that we have, with the smart bowls that we offer. And so I actually, my wife hated the process, but I did it on, on myself in our house. I installed things myself. I wired things myself. I commissioned them myself. I created routines and experimented with that with no pressure that I had to sell it to a client to make myself an expert. And then once I learned that and became comfortable with it, I felt comfortable teaching our teams and demystifying the process. The technology used to be such that it required an expert, like an AV consultant. They would put in a computer room in your house that would take up a lot of space. And the minute that you wanted to change something, you had to spend like $300 to have them come out to tweet one thing. The new technology right now is actually distributed, which means that there's not one central location that controls everything, but there are a lot of little pieces that work together that you pull together within apps. So we're all very comfortable with our phones. The apps allow us to create integration, to pull things together. I will tell our clients that if they're scared about getting into a Lutron system with lighting controls and specifying those with the LEDs that we recommend, it doesn't tie them to one platform. Later on, they can add in Legrand products. They can add in products from Amazon. They can add in smart plugs that they purchase at Home Depot. Treat their digital assistants, whether it be Google Home, Alexa, or Apple HomeKit, as the hair tie that will pull all those together into a central location. And that's where they minister to a lot of things. So I think once they understand that it's not as daunting and they start to get comfortable with just trying things out one component at a time, which is the complete opposite from what it, the way it used to be, right? You had to have your whole home commission at once and it was so forbidding you didn't want to touch it. If you just start with one switch and start to get comfortable with that and then ramp it up as your comfort level increases, it's not only easy for our clients to manage from a cost and understanding standpoint, but it's also easy for our folks to sell, saying it's just dip your toe in. You don't, it doesn't have to be daunting. Try it. And they only need to know about the complexity of that one switch or how a Pico works, those sorts of things. So the world has changed. You just have to be flexible to be open to trying it out yourself. I actually encourage a lot of our manufacturers, Lutron in particular, to give little mini starter kits to a lot of our teams within the showroom so that they can try it on themselves at home, get comfortable with it in their own environments in a safe way, and then, then sell it to our clients. Nothing is better for selling than personal anecdotes and personal relationships with our clients. If, if you can say you've done it yourself and you're comfortable, they feel that much more at ease. They don't feel like it's a hard sell or you're, you're making things up. Yeah. I think with any kind of like smart home type product or really any like technology you're bringing in, I think a lot of the concern for both the customer and whoever's selling the product are, what do I do when there's issues? Or how do I handle if this doesn't work the way that I expected it to work? But if someone has done it themselves, they've been through that so they can really speak to you can actually call someone from Legrand or Lutron. I meant the showroom person can call oh, and discuss these things and understand how to handle issues. Absolutely. And the other thing too, again, the design continues to get better and better so that it becomes much more user-friendly and seamless. A lot of the hard stuff happens in the background. You never see it. 
No. The other nice thing about the distributed systems is each and every manufacturer, including with the apps, is constantly rolling out updates. So the technology that you get is not necessarily going to be the technology in 10 years. The bugs will be worked out. New features will be added and you don't have to yank something out of your wall or completely throw away a $10,000 home automation system that you purchased a decade ago. It makes it a lot more future-proof. That's great. Wrapping things up, what advice do you have for showrooms that are looking to make a change like you guys have made or shift some of the offerings, their product offerings? Do you have any advice for how to get started or what to do there? It does go back to that sort of user analysis. So once people understand how to empathize with their clients, they put themselves within that, walk through the space that you have right now. Look for key touch points. Those are you know areas that are big with the experience, whether it's a physical touch point, like even just opening the door to your showroom, or it's a virtual one, which is oftentimes the first touch point that people have, which is either searching yourself on Google or going to your own website. And walk step-by-step step through the space. Look for areas that we call friction, where things don't quite work right, where you can't find what you want. It, the reception desk is way buried down in there. And also look for undesirable things like clutter, like confusion, like areas where people don't know what to do and use those as opportunities for improvement or decluttering for making things simpler and easier or more welcoming. The more that you can get yourself in the head of someone who's trying to do a project, the more you'll see the different services that you can offer, the different approaches that you can offer, and the more you can make your space cater to their needs and just go bit by bit. If you have the luxury of having a lot of resources to invest in a wholesale demo and rethinking, great, do it, but start small first. Again, with the idea towards empathetic design, and it will always benefit your business. The more that you relate to your customers, the more your customers want to work with you, the more of their business you're going to get. And that's always great for the bottom line. That's great advice. And it's attainable advice, which I like. (laughs) Absolutely. So yeah. And again, I will always be an advocate for design, but I think I also will always be an advocate for the industry. It sounds like a cliche to say on an ALA podcast, but I'm very passionate about what lighting can do for us, both from an emotional health, as well as experience standpoint. So the more that we can make it better for our clients, the more we're doing kind of our part to make the world a little better. Again, it's very grandiose, very hyperbolic. But I do believe in it. Liz and I say stuff like that all the time. So you fit right in here. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. I'm in a safe place then. Thank you so much for your time and for all this really good, actionable advice. My pleasure. Always happy to help. Thanks, Matt. All right. Thanks, guys. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. And Matt talked about it too. Lighting affects everything else. Everything in the environment you're in is colored by the lighting you walk through, and it makes a difference in a poorly lit, cold-looking utilitarian space. You're just not going to have the same kind of comfort and ease that you are in a warm, glowing place that's lit for the purpose it's meant to be for. Yeah, live for life, (laughs) for living. There you go. (laughs) But I, yes, he shares that passion that I think so many people in the industry, I think almost everyone in the industry shares. And it's, it's great to hear how he has taken that and applied it to a business model and shared it with 
the entire showroom he's working with. So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of what he said can be, like we said earlier, implemented into any business, but especially in a showroom. And you don't have to do it all at once. You can take aspects of what he said and focus on that. I really like the point of thinking about the touch points and starting there. So think about Google yourself and see the first things that come up. What is the experience if you're looking for the first time at your showroom online? Are they getting a first impression that you want them to get? And the first time they walk in the door, are they being received in the way that you want them to be received? Are they feeling how you would like them to feel? Because that's so much of what a showroom does is provides an experience and a service. Mm -hmm. And you can do it bit by bit and iterate it and focus it and refine it as you go. And Matt's not done iterating and refining and focusing. So it's it's an ongoing process. Absolutely. If you are looking for more training and education, we have a lot of available webinars on our website right now. We have been running live webinars multiple times a month right now, and all the recorded versions of those are available on our website, as well as our library of free lighting webinars that are always available to members online. They are password protected, so if you need that password, please email us at podcast at alalighting.com, and we are happy to share it with our members. At alamembers.com is where you'll find those live and recorded webinars that you can purchase and earn continuing education credits from and just continue learning and growing your showroom. Thanks for listening. Stay brilliant. <laughs>